0: Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Adam White, who's a resident scholar at AEI, where he focuses on American constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, and the administrative state, He's also an assistant professor of law and the director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. In the past, he was a research fellow for Stanford University's Hoover Institution and an adjunct fellow for the Manhattan Institute. He started his legal career as a law clerk for Judge David Santel at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. He has a J.D. from Harvard Law School and a Bachelor of Business Administration from the College of Business at the University of Iowa. Thanks for joining us today, Adam.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me.
0: We like to start out our episodes by just asking our guests first to tell us a little bit about how they came to AEI. So what did your path look like to get here? How did you end up in D.C. working, working for us?
1: Well, I was a practicing lawyer for 12 or 13 years after law school. I knew I wanted to be in D.C. ever since I, I was an intern in the late 90s. And so I came down here and practiced energy law, environmental law, financial regulation, other regulatory subjects and slowly began to write more and more on the side. I was very lucky to have an adjunct fellowship with the Manhattan Institute, and then went full-time into this career, at, as you mentioned, at the, the Hoover Institution. And then as Robert Doerr and Yuval Levin began to build up the new program for social, cultural, and constitutional studies, they reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in joining. And I have to admit, it was the chance of a lifetime to get to do this. I've always admired AEI's work, given its legacy, especially the legacy of Chris DeMuth and Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork, and the folks that were writing in the late 70s, early 80s on constitutional and regulatory issues. I've always considered that a real jewel of of AEI's legacy as a whole. And the opportunity to come here and try to build up that part of AEI now at a time when these issues are as important as ever. And to do it with, with friends and colleagues who I know so well and respect was just a great opportunity.
2: And Adam, we're very happy to have you. You've been terrific. I can't think of a, a nicer, more friendly colleague around the building and with young people and with fellow scholars. And it's just been great to get to know you better as you've come to AI. Adam knows, maybe Phoebe, you don't know, but I'm a little bit of an amateur lawyer's constitutional pretend expert. This is the banter broadcast I've Most look forward to is talking to Adam about these issues, and I wanted to ask you about the recent term of the Supreme Court and the Republican-appointed judges: Alito, Roberts, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. There were a lot of hard cases, and they all didn't come down the same. Each of the justices did not see all these difficult challenges all the same, which kind of contradicts the stereotype that you know our judges are either Republican judges or or Democrat judges. It's actually much more complicated than that. So could you give us a little sort of introductory s description of how Alito is different from Roberts, and Roberts from Thomas, and Thomas from Gorsuch and Kavanaugh? I mean, how are they different, and how did they show their differences in this recent term?
1: Well, there's always been subtle but important differences among the conservative justices, even long before this term. Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, for all of their agreements, and they usually wound up in the same place in outcomes of cases, they had really different views of how to think of the Constitution itself as a legal document, and the extent to which it incorporates the principles of the Declaration of Independence, the extent to which precedent plays a role in the work of a judge in addition to just reading the text of a, of a law. And so they were always subtle but interesting and important disagreements. And I think that as we have more and more conservative judges on the court, I guess that the triumph of originalism, of textualism, and I can explain those at some point if you think I need to. But the more judges we have like that on the court, the more opportunity there is to just see the importance of these subtle disagreements. And so in the last term, we saw justices really start to grapple out loud with what it means to have a precedent, how to bring precedent into the legal interpretation and balance your own interpretation versus those that are enshrined in precedence. Then you had cases like Bostock, the Civil Rights Act case involving gender identity and sexual orientation, where Justice Gorsuch and Chief Justice Roberts really read the Civil Rights Act in a way that the other conservatives on the court, and and I think most conservatives who watch the court just fundamentally disagreed with. And I think the difference comes down to what sort of principles you bring to the work of interpretation. Now, in a very oversimplified way, what I would say is that the easiest way to sort of group the conservative justices together right now is... You have Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, who are really, I think, focused on questions of individual liberty, maybe a bit more emphatically than the other justices. They're more likely to talk in terms of, of liberty and due process and, I think, minimize precedent more, whereas Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, while they too are textualists, they seem to be a little bit more restrained in how far they'll take their textualism and I suspect there's going to be more space in their interpretations for the work of precedent, especially in the case of the Chief Justice. Justice Alito is an interesting figure in the middle of all this. He's the first Supreme Court justice I really wrote about at length. I think the essay that I wrote about 10 years ago about Justice Alito calling him the the Burkean justice, like Edmund Burke, that kind of put me on the map of, of back then the Weekly Standard community. And really opened some doors for me. And my argument there was that Justice Alito seemed to be uniquely his, his approach was really uniquely informed by a professor he admired when he was coming up, just as I admired now, Alexander Bickel, a Yale law professor who died in the 1970s, and really counseled in favor of judicial restraint, respect for established institutions, respect for the political process, and through federalism that would really allow issues to percolate up through local communities and states before being decided at the Supreme Court level. And Alito has always been a little bit more restrained, I think, in his textualism, but with an eye to things like Burkean minimalism.
2: Adam, I want to interrupt you there because I would Please. recommend to our listeners to read Justice Alito's dissent in the civil rights case, because it really is. And it's a classic example of that kind of restraint and and Burkean respect for institutions where he really admonished in as strong terms as Scalia would use against liberals, Gorsuch for reading something into the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four that just wasn't there when it passed. Is that quite a remarkable dissent in his pretty strong criticism of Justice Gorsuch's opinion?
1: It is. I thought it was a marvelous dissent. I agreed with it. And I think that it's a for both Gorsuch and Alito, it was a question of what they were reading and what they were not reading. Alito's the main, main thrust of his Dissent was not just that nobody who passed the Civil Rights Act thought that this was going to touch on matters of gender identity or sexual orientation, but also that in addition to that, then we've carried on since 1964 under that understanding. Everything that's arisen since then has been based on this basic premise that the Civil Rights Act covered discrimination on the basis of sex as it was classically understood, and that everything that's being called for now is not. It's not just a reinterpretation of the statute. It's effectively an amendment of the statute. Until recently, people were trying to get the Civil Rights Act amended. And Alito is pointing to all that, that whole history up to the act being enacted, and since then, and saying we need to interpret the laws practically with an eye to all the understanding that that behavior evidences. Whereas Justice as approach was in a ways more academic, and I don't mean that as a as a slander. I'm an academic myself, but really taking a sort of taking a much more abstracted view of the words in the Civil Rights Act. And I thought those opinions more than anything exemplified some of the fault lines among the conservative legal movement today.
2: But but Justice Gorsuch also the Civil Rights Act was about race more than anything else. Yeah. And right. even the prohibition against discrimination based on sex was an add-on late in the game. And again, in the, in the people that wrote it and the people that passed it and the people that discussed it and in how it's been interpreted for a long time, it never envisioned sexual orientation discrimination, which might be a good outcome. And that's one of the next question I want to ask you. You started out by saying that Gorsuch and Thomas were interested in liberty more than anything else. And I wondered, is that what motivates Corsage to sort of say, because I want people to be free or as free as possible, and I want the liberties of our system to be extended to people of all kinds? Is, did he just sort of get to the outcome and then figure out how to get there?
1: I don't think so. And I, I want to take care to not overstate the point about liberty. Like I said, they talk about it a lot, all the justices do, of course. And so I don't want to overstate the emphasis. I really think that Justice Gorsuch, his method of originalism, really does take the law, abstract it away from so much of the debate leading up to the law and the debates happening after the law. That's, in some ways, how we've always phrased originalism. You don't care about legislative history. You just look at what Congress said, and you try to understand that. But I think maybe the Bostock case reminds us that you could take that principle of judicial restraint restraint from reading legislative history, too far, and that if you read the words on the page totally abstracted from the debates that gave rise to the law and the way that the law was initially implemented, that you lose important evidence of what the law actually meant at the time. And so I take Justice Gorsuch's opinion to be sort of the the high watermark of a textualism that strips away all outside context leading up to the law's enactment and following it. And I I see Alito's dissent as one of the strongest arguments from within the conservative legal movement in a long time, that those pieces of context matter immensely in how we understand the words on a page.
2: So now let's be asked another sort of controversial dispute among conservatives. And that is, I mean, he's almost been written out of the conservative club by some of our friends, and that is the Chief Justice. And is it all about his refusal to overrule Roe v Wade and what did he do exactly where did he switch a position the previous position he had taken on a similar case concerning abortion because he didn't want to upset the Apple card Am I right that that sort of made him the bet noir of the pro-life movement
1: Well Chief Justice Roberts alienated most conservatives in those two famous decisions years ago about about Obamacare. First upholding the individual mandate as a tax, a constitutional tax, and then later upholding the Obama administration's reading of the statute to allow for certain subsidies that I think was a very strained reading of the statute. And so Roberts is basically alienated Conservative.
2: He was already I, out. He was already out. He was, <laughs> he was,
1: he was already out. I, I have to admit, Robert, you have the misfortune of employing maybe the, the most Robert sympathetic legal conservative in Washington, D.C. I actually I don't take, well, I, I definitely don't like the second of those Obamacare decisions. And the first one, I think, is at best I'm ambivalent towards it. I think that Roberts has actually had a lot of interesting opinions on the administrative state. He's been maybe the administrative state's most vocal critic among conservatives, arguably. But the, everything with Roberts is seen through the lens of the Obamacare cases.
2: He Even though he was the, the key, case. he wrote the opinion on the voting case, which is an important opinion. So, I, But that, anyway, right. go, on the, on go on ahead.
1: The Voting Rights Act case, yeah. He could write 50 more opinions like that, who knows if he will, like the, the Voting Rights Act opinion, and he'll never ever, I think come back into the good graces of conservatives. And so needless to say, I think that colors a conservatives' view of, of all of his work. In the most recent case, you're referring to June Medical Services had to do with the state of Louisiana's laws on the safety standards and, and, and just standards of the provision of medical care in abortion clinics. And the practical impact of those laws was to really limit the availability of abortion in the state of Louisiana. The Supreme Court had struck down a similar law in Texas just a few years ago in a case called Whole Women's Health. And Roberts dissented in that case and said, these regulations are all totally reasonable. Modern abortion jurisprudence in the Supreme Court asks whether a law is an undue burden. And these laws are not undue burdens. They might burden a little bit, but it's not excessive. They might burden the right to abortion. So the big surprise then, as you mentioned, was in this new case coming out of Louisiana, Roberts said that even though he still he disagrees with the previous decision, this new case is so close to the old one in terms of the facts at hand, the laws at issue, their impact in the state of Louisiana, that Robert said, just as a matter of precedent, I'm going to oh. abide by this.
2: So he didn't change his I, mind. He just said, well, the previous case was a precedent, even though it's only two years old.
1: That's right. I think he, if anything, probably went out of his way to, to stress that he hadn't changed his mind on the subject matter. He was very wary of reversing course so quickly I was talking with somebody about this just the other day. There's sort of a catch twenty-two with precedents. If you reverse them right away, especially when like a new justice has been has joined the court, right away it almost looks like the court is political and it just changes its mind based on the arrival of, of you know, in this case Justice Kavanaugh. But then if you wait too long, a precedent is so established the argument is well, we can't overturn this precedent because it's so long standing. And so it's almost like there's People th- expect there to be the sweet spot in the middle where it's, it's not too hot, not too cold, it's just right. <laughs> um, and one of the things, and maybe this will lead to a conversation about Judge Amy Coney Barrett in a little while, but in the last term, there were just fascinating opinions. In this case, the, the abortion case, in another case called Ramos that had to do with a precedent involving the death penalty and criminal juries, but the justices are really arguing about what precedent is, how to define the limits of a precedent. How to define the limits of precedent in general and how it works. And obviously, all of this happens with an eye forward to future cases involving Roe v. Wade and other long established precedents or some longer than others. And one of the reasons why I'm, I was so excited by the Amy Coney Barrett nomination was that she's dedicated basically her whole entire academic career to thinking through precedent and the work of a judge. And I'd say that opinions like those really elevate what is. The most important issue, perhaps, at this generational turning point of the Supreme Court with the addition of all these new justices is thinking about how to read the law anew but with some respect and wait for precedent. And the last case, the last term with the abortion case and the death penalty case exemplified that as well.
2: Well, since you brought up precedent and you brought up the court's struggle with that, I thought the case involving whether a nine-person jury needed to be unanimous in criminal cases at state level. I think that's what it was about. had about four opinions, where Kavanaugh took one position, Alito took another, I think Gorsuch took a third, that all looked at it differently. Do you, do you remember that case? And can you give me any thoughts on that case?
1: Yeah, that case was extremely complicated because the original precedent they were talking about, you know, I can't remember the name of the older case. It was from a couple few decades ago. They're a very badly fractured Supreme Court, basically held with a sort of a jumble of opinions that a state can impose the death penalty with with less than a unanimous jury. And there was real questions about what was the real rule of that case, given that the, the opinions all kind of pointed in somewhat different directions. And then what kind of weight is that precedent entitled to? as the court reconsiders the issue now because ever since then, the whole wave of criminal justice cases in the Supreme Court has really pointed in the direction of going back to the original conception of juries, the importance of juries, bringing issues to juries, requiring unanimity with juries. This old case sort of sticks out like a sore thumb and, and the question was whether to overturn it or not. and before you can overturn a precedent, you have to sort of define, well, what is the precedent? What did it mean? Is it even still a good precedent? This was a case where, again, the court moved forward getting rid of the old precedent, but over some pretty vigorous dissenting opinions.
0: Okay. So let's talk about Judge Amy Coney Barrett for a minute. So assuming that she is confirmed to the court at this point, Where would you see her kind of fitting in on the bench? What allies would she have there? And what issues do you see her being most active on?
1: As I said at the beginning, I kind of map these things onto the Scalia-Thomas spectrum, right? Thomas, focused on originalism with minimal focus on precedent. Scalia, quintessential textualist, obviously, but with some measures of restraint when it comes to seeing a role for, for precedent. When I say restraint, well, I guess what I mean is willing to restrain his own application of his own view of the law and give some room for precedent to still have some weight. Barrett, she clerked for Scalia, and she has said unequivocally that she, she follows in the footsteps of Justice Scalia. And so I think that's the first and foremost the best way to understand her, that she's an originalist. But at the same time, she, she understands that precedent has to have some weight in the process, she never says how much specifically because her academic writing is quintessentially academic. It's really not focused on specific outcomes. And I think anybody who tries to pin down her scholarship is pointing in particular directions in particular cases is just fooling themselves. So I would begin by saying Barrett would be a little bit closer to, say, Roberts and Kavanaugh on that spectrum and maybe Alito. Mm-hmm. But we never quite know and we'll find out. But that's where I begin with things.
2: So it's not a sure thing that she would support overruling Roe v. Wade and not, say, side with Roberts, who decides not to overrule it.
1: That's right. I And I'm sorry, if that last answer was a little bit muddled. But with Roe v. Wade, people are focused on her in part because of her writings. She has been a critic of Roe v. Wade on at least two occasions while she was an academic. In addition, she's Catholic, and she's not shy that. And so naturally, there's a suspicion of Catholic judges as being inclined against the right to abortion. Now, I think Catholic judges should be inclined against the right to abortion because I think all judges should be inclined against that. It's not in the Constitution. And I think when you begin with a textualist interpretation of the law, it's impossible to get to Roe v. Wade. The question is how much weight to give precedent. The way this works in practice sometimes, It's not like there's going to be a case that begins with the core right of Roe v. Wade. It is going to begin with sort of these peripheral issues of undue burdens. And so we'll have to wait and see probably how Barrett grapples with that. And my guess is she'll be willing to accommodate laws that burden the right to abortion within the framework of Roe v. Wade as it already exists, but in those initial cases, we might get some hints about how clearly she sees the textual issue and how much weight she wants to give to precedents like the the whole women's health case from a couple of years ago.
2: What about her personality? Judges have personalities. Justice Frankfurter was a prickly guy and, you know, Justice Douglas had his ways. And, you know, there is interesting contrast between Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor. And what's her personality going to be like on the court?
1: Let me just say at the outset, I think this is incredibly important. I think sometimes people take an abstracted view of judges and they just say, well, if the judge has the right methodology, that's all that should matter. I disagree with that. I think it's very important what kind of temperament a judge has and how he or she presents him or herself to the public, not just the words that they choose in their opinions, but the way they deal with their colleagues and with those with whom they disagree. we spent so much time It's Justice Ginsburg's passing, talking about what an important lesson Justices Scalia and Ginsburg gave us all about how you work with colleagues with whom you disagree. Barrett has every indication of being an ideal justice in this respect. She's universally praised or loved and respected by her colleagues, and I know a number of people at Notre Dame on the faculty there and they all admire her immensely and they they admired her immensely long before she was in play for a possible Supreme Court nomination. In public, she's always presented herself as far as I can tell in the best possible way, the way she she gives talks, the way she debates people. I think that this will really actually in some ways she might end up being the best Trump appointee in terms of just simple public relation. She could wind up people are already calling her A C B as sort of an echo of RGB, the late Justice Ginsburg. But it's not hard to imagine Justice Barrett actually becoming a sort of a public figure in the way that Justice Ginsburg did. Maybe not quite the same way. Obviously, Ginsburg was a bit of a rock star at the end. But Barrett could really be a public figure of immense cultural importance.
2: Well, just hold on there, Adam. Should a Supreme Court justice become that? Maybe Justice Ginsburg, I know it's not polite, but I think that she went a little too far with that public persona and it it undermined her credibility as a judge? Or am am I being too stuffy? I, you know, admire Justice Ginsburg as much as the next person, but that sort of high level of a personality for a Supreme Court justice and public persona, that isn't all good. I don't think that's necessarily correct behavior for a Supreme Court justice. I hate to say something negative about the recently deceased, but there it is. Do you really want Amy Coney Barrett to become a a rock star, as you say? It's funny
1: you mention that. If I could do a little cross-promotion. Just the other day, for, for my own podcast at AEI, Unprecedential, I interviewed a law professor, Chad Oldfather from Marquette, who has a new article out about celebrity justices. And we talked a lot about this, actually. I do agree with you that, with all due respect to Justice Ginsburg, her celebrity status, I think, was totally overdone. I think, in some ways... I don't think she was totally responsible for it. I think it kind of grew up around her, but she certainly embraced it and I think kind of egged it on a little bit. These things can go too far and I think it's it's dangerous when we put so much celebrity status in a justice. Now, I'll say at the same time, Justice Scalia while he wasn't he never rose to sort of the pop culture icon that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. Scalia himself had a very sort of vocal public persona. And as a law student, I loved it. As a lawyer, I loved it. I'd say in hindsight, I sometimes wonder now, especially with the lesson of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, maybe it was a a little bit much. And I agree with you that it's important for justices to be careful about those things. And so I guess the line I would draw is, I think it's important for justices to be statesmen whenever possible, to project and embody the credibility and the legitimacy and the dispassion that we need in our judicial branch. And I'd say that going too far and really embracing a rock star status, I think, is is, is a mistake. And it would be a good thing. I I don't want Amy Coney Barrett to become that. I do think it would be good if she could model publicly the sorts of constitutional virtues that we, we need in all of our public officials, but especially in judges.
2: And while we're at it, I mean, I think Justice Sotomayor has a little problem there too. And if, if Justice Barrett becomes the sort of conservative Sotomayor on college campuses and in her personality, I'll be disappointed because I yeah. do think it has a negative effect on the strength of the institutional judgment that is not helpful.
1: If I just say one more thing, I oftentimes think that as well, that Justice Sotomayor, you know, her first book was about her, her background, I worry. That she's sort of stepping forward in a sort of celebrity way, and then I think back to Justice Thomas's memoir, My Grandfather's Son. He recalls sort of his upbringing and all of that. And I have to admit, I like the Thomas approach and the Scalia approach much more yeah. than the Sotomayor and Ginsburg approach. And I'm pretty sure I have good reasons on the merits to see it this way. But I do have to admit mm-hmm. that my my view of Sotomayor and Ginsburg is colored more than a little bit by my view of their jurisprudence, and so I probably should be charitable.
0: I wanted to ask you a little bit about the process of these nominations, which have become so bitter, so political, you know, kind of inevitably a circus at the end. Many people would say there's there's fault on both sides for that, a lot of precedent for that. But has it really gotten a lot worse in the past administration? And do you think part of that is that it's become so popular to kind of overtly campaign on remaking the judiciary, whether it's you know, Republican or Democratic candidates, that that's kind of a part of the platform? And would you recommend that that kind of be separated out?
1: Well, these are tough questions. I'd say the process has gotten so heated for the reasons that Justice Scalia said in his dissent at Planned Parenthood versus Casey, one of the really important abortion cases of the early 90s, where he warned his colleagues in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of the Thomas hearings, actually, that to the extent that my colleagues, the other justices think that the confirmation process is getting too ugly. They need to understand that it's ugly because the Supreme Court inserts itself in far too many policy disputes. It is taking policy issues and turning these political questions into constitutional ones. And so it's only natural then the people, as he says, the twin facts, the people, the American people love democracy and are not fools. They will understand that if American constitutional law is just about value judgments, then they should make their own value judgments heard through the the Supreme Court confirmation process. So that's the beginning of it, I'd say. But that doesn't account for just the politics of personal destruction, which have been so ugly and have come, here I feel absolutely no compunctions about saying this, have come exclusively from Democratic senators. You've never seen Republican senators levy the sorts of personal accusations against justices in the way the Democratic senators have. I know that's partisan, but it's also true. And so that's ratcheted up the ugliness. But I think we have to always understand, again, that just the heat, the pressure cooker of this process is the sum total of the heats and the pressure cookers that can't happen in the political process because the court has taken these issues out of the process. I'd say the last few years, just the slow ratcheting upward from the Bork hearings and the Thomas hearings to Democrats were filibustering lower court judges in the early 2000s. And Republicans came close to using what we call the nuclear option to get rid of the judicial filibuster. They they didn't though. But then just a few years later, Harry Reid did to clear a road for three Obama appointees to the DC circuit. And then McConnell said, you'll rue this day. Sure enough, the Democrats did because that move opened the door to a flood of Trump judges on the lower courts, and also these appointments to the Supreme Court that can't be filibustered. It keeps ratcheting up. I have some worries, to say the least, about the politics surrounding this, especially in the aftermath of Garland's nomination, and we could talk about that if you'd like. But it's hard for me to see how we're going to get out of this without a party in power exercising self-restraint when there's nothing there to restrain them on the other side. I think, and maybe that's futile too, but I really worry that this is going to continue getting worse and worse and worse, and I don't see an off-ramp other than self-restraint.
2: You're right about the way this breaks down, but the key underlying problem is, is what Justice Scalia pointed out in that decision is when courts reach in and try to resolve contentious disputes that are really better left to the democratic process that we have. And Justice Gorsuch's opinion in the civil rights case was an example of that. I mean, it, he, clearly the country had an opportunity to determine that the Civil Rights Act covered those situations in a process that could have happened in Congress and signed by the President, it didn't do it, and he said, well, okay, I'll do it for you. I'm right about that, aren't I, Adam?
1: Gorsuch would say, obviously, you're wrong on the merits, he'd say, yeah. That's why he wrote the opinion. But you know, but also, there we're talking about a statute, and so Gorsuch might say, you know, if you don't like my the court's interpretation, then all you need to do is amend the Change statute. Change the statute. Say, yeah, yeah, gonna, yeah. Then you and I would argue with him about what the statute meant in the first instance. Yes, It's bad enough. Interpreting statutes where there we have maybe a theoretical place for Congress to get involved, though Congress too often doesn't get involved. With the constitutional issues, you really are taking them out of the people's hands until there's a constitutional amendment or the court overturns the precedent.
2: So let's turn to an area where you do have done a lot of work and other AI scholars have done a lot of work. And in the coming years there's a chance for some big changes. And just tell our listeners in the administrative law area What are the big challenges that the court may take up, and what are the outcomes you think would be best for the future of the country?
1: Sure. Well, on on questions of, of the administrative state, there's a few big issues that really have been put back into play. I like to say the court is either raising new questions or reopening timeless questions of the administrative state. One is this question of what we call deference. Statutes are written in very broad terms, and agencies will interpret them one way or another to suit their policy agenda. The question is how hard should the court work to disagree with the agency if the agency's interpretation is questionable but reasonable? And under these vague statutes, that's usually the case. Should the courts defer to the agency's judgment? Justice Thomas really led the way in the last decade to say, after I'd say 30 years of Republicans more or less supporting judicial deference. And actually is a story that begins with AEI in a way and calls for judges to, to leave more space for the Reagan administration to, to interpret the law. Justice Thomas has said no, judicial deference is judicial abdication. As Philip Hamburger, a professor at Columbia, says, it's judicial bias, and that the Constitution obligates judges to interpret the law for themselves. And if a law is vague, the judges need to decide what the best meaning is, not these agencies. Don't defer. And so that's one of the big questions. Is What to do with judicial deference. But as I said, that's all really downstream of the bigger problem that Congress writes extremely vague laws that don't really have a clear meaning. And the question is whether, when you write a vague law like that, you, Congress, are just delegating away your legislative power to an agency. And so we have this whole debate over whether courts should do more to stop Congress from writing such vague laws. Those two debates are coming up through the Supreme Court, through the lower courts. A number of justices have weighed in on it. And this is one of those areas where there really is a big divide, I think. Thomas and Gorsuch have made clear that they should get rid of judicial deference. Kavanaugh and Roberts seem much more clearly in the mend it, don't end it school. Similarly, Thomas and Gorsuch are both vocal advocates for a much more rigorous, what we call non-delegation doctrine, stopping Congress from writing such vague laws. Roberts and Kavanaugh, while they've been very critical of the administrative state, really haven't joined those calls in quite the same way. You'll note I haven't mentioned Alito. He's been much more muted on these subjects. He's written a little bit. He's clearly dissatisfied with the status quo, but it's not clear where exactly he'd wind up going. And at the same time as the five, with Barrett, I guess, six justices, while they're debating all these things, along with Kagan and the others on the court, this whole generation of lower court judges They really are thinking anew about these issues. I get to talk with a lot of these judges, and and they understand that there's just something doesn't quite add up in the current situation with all the power that agencies wield. And they're really thinking through these instincts and thinking through their view of what it means to read a law and to decide a case. And so I think a lot of these lower court judges are going to elevate and amplify these debates till the Supreme Court resolves them.
2: So there'll be instances where they will rule against the administrative state or rule against the administrative bureaucracy or the fourth branch, as Ted Olson once called them. And then the court will have to decide whether they made the right call.
1: That's right. The lower courts can't overturn Supreme Court precedents, so they'll have to work within the bounds of the doctrines of deference and delegation. But they could push those doctrines to the limit and say... Even with existing precedents in place, I think this particular statute or this particular interpretation is wrong. Or they might side with the administrative agency, but judges could write their own individual opinions saying, if I were deciding this in the first instance, if I were not bound by Supreme Court precedent, I would rule the other way for these reasons. And those sorts of opinions really do help to tee up issues for the Supreme Court to deal with. For what it's worth, I think at least in the short term and maybe the long term, The way that we're going to get out, the way that this is going to be resolved is it's not that the court is going to strike down a lot of statutes, but I think it's going to start to read a lot of broad statutes more narrowly and try to pinpoint a best reading of the statute and so reduce the deference, the discretion that's available to agencies. And maybe that's the right way forward because as Justice Scalia in his AEI days, he was very wary of the court using the non-delegation doctrine to strike down statutes. It just felt to him too much like what the Warren Court did through the 60s into the Burger Court of the 70s, striking down state laws without a real clear constitutional rule behind it. Scalia was always wary of that. And I think some of the current justices might be wary of it too. And if that's the case, the best way out is to interpret the statutes narrowly.
2: One last for you, Adam, before we go, presidential power, the use of executive orders. Are you concerned one way or the other about the president's power growing too great or becoming too diminished? And are executive orders becoming kind of sort of press events that don't have any real meaning in law?
1: Well, on that last one, that's definitely the case. Executive orders usually have this little boilerplate thing. to the maximum extent allowed by law or something like that. So that an executive order can say a lot, but it's always implicitly limited by all the other laws that are out there. And I think presidents take advantage of that. They can now sort of say whatever they want in an executive order and know that you know, you can have a lot of colorful language in there, but it's not really going to have a whole lot of meaning. I have you're just sitting here behind me on my my desk here, I've got a book from years ago called A List and Index of Presidential Executive Orders from 1789 to 1941. It's beach reading, really. And um, it's not a very big book. I mean, the first 100, almost, you know, nearly 200 years of our history, the first 170 years of our history, the executive orders, there weren't there are a lot of them, but it's not like today where you get so, so many of them. I'm of two minds on executive orders. On the one hand, I wrote a piece about this a few years ago for the Notre Dame Law Review. I think that if a president has a policy that he wants to enforce, it's probably a good thing for him to send an order to the agencies that apply the statutes saying, this is my reading of the statute and the policy, and you're ordered to follow it to the maximum extent necessary. I think that's good because it, really embodies the fact that our president has the executive power and, and he's the one with the constitutional obligation to basically execute the laws. And I don't want the agencies all off the reservations. And so it's good for the president to use executive orders in that way for the sake of a coherent administration. But as Yuval and I have written most recently in, in some of the debates arising in the COVID era, there is a risk. I, I say the law aside, there's sort of the political constitution and the idea that we shouldn't want a system where a president uses executive orders to short circuit a political process involving appropriation of funds, these sorts of things that are active debates within the legislative branch. There's just something really deeply problematic about a president just jumping to a conclusion with an executive order. And worst of all, these executive orders, it's just the administrative state in general. It makes these laws and these regulations, unilaterally, you know, without a whole lot of deliberation and certainly not without any compromise. And then the next administration comes in and like an old edge sketch just kind of shakes it up and draws everything anew. And it's just a massive instability in the law. And our Constitution in many ways was framed in a way to promote steadiness in administration. Obviously, things change from one administration to the next but they can't change so rapidly or so wildly. There's no way to run a country. And I think that is one of the two or three biggest problems, constitutional problems of our era. It's just this unsteadiness of administration fueled by these unilateral executive orders.
2: Phoebe, you got anything more for our great constitutional expert?
0: I think that's it. But thank you, Adam. That was great.
1: Thanks. Can I just say one thing in closing? Yes. I just the other day completed my set of the old AEI Constitution books from the '80s that were edited by Robert Goldwin, one of the great AEI scholars of the 1970s and '80s. And Robert, our Robert, Robert Dorr, will remember the first conversation that we ever had, you and I ever had, was about that era and and how important it is. I think, and how actually, in some ways, it was forgotten. The efforts of AEI scholars in the '70s and '80s they really helped lay the groundwork for what came to be originalism. And we lawyers usually start with Scalia and, and Ed Meese and President Reagan, and obviously, they, they deserve immense immense credit. But I gotta say, one of the real joys of being at AEI is knowing that all the constitutional work... Of the legal stuff, really does ride on top of these other issues. And, and so being part of a, of a department at AEI, social, cultural, and constitutional studies, that really recognizes the fact that the Constitution in many ways comes at the end of a discussion as much as the, of the beginning of a discussion, that's just really rewarding. And I'm very excited about the work that I'm getting to do with, with you all and my colleagues.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.